Now, will you notice that we come now to chapter 26, and we have here the curtains of linen. And I want to say just a word concerning them. The tabernacle proper had over it three coverings. It had a linen covering. Well, it had four coverings, actually. It had first that linen covering that was put all over the tabernacle proper. Now, that's the part that was 30 cubits long, 10 cubits wide, 10 cubits high. Now, this linen cloth, as it was sewed together, came up over all of that part. And it came down the sides and didn't quite touch the ground. It was not permitted to touch the ground. Well, let me read this, verse 1 of chapter 26. Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet with cherubims of cunning work shalt I make them. You see, it was a beautiful thing. That fine twine, vices, Egyptian linen, and in it was woven cherubims. It revealed just the beauty inside. It couldn't be seen outside. And very frankly, the beauty of Christ cannot be seen by the world. He can only satisfy one of his own. And that's the reason worship of him is so important. And why believers ought to gather together is that they might not only feed on Christ, but that they might behold him in his beauty. Remember he said that where I am, there ye may be also. He wants us to be with him. And today we ought to be with him. That is in our worship of him, beholding his beauty. Over in the 17th Psalm, David wrote, "...keep me as the apple of the eye, hide me under the shadow of thy wings." Now, those wings were in the cherubim that were up over in the linen cloth above. That's a good place to be hidden today, underneath those wings. And then the next was this goat's hair curtain, verse 7, and thou shalt make curtains of goat's hair to be a covering upon the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shalt thou make. And you see, they had to be sewn together. The length of one curtain shall be thirty cubits. And you see, it means it would just exactly go up one side, ten cubits, over the top ten, on the other side, ten. So it would exactly cover the tabernacle. And the eleven curtains shall be all of one measure. And then he goes on to tell about how they're to be put together with loops and rings that would hold them together. And it speaks actually of the sin offering. It speaks of Christ's worth for sinners. The goat's hair actually was seen from the outside. It was really what the world can see, that it speaks of the death of Christ. In fact, this is the message that's to be given to the world. And we read in Hebrews 9, 26, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the age hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's appeared. This is the message that should go forth. Then we have in verse 14, And thou shalt make a covering for the ten of ram skins dyed red, and a covering above a badger skin. Now, the third covering was ram skin dyed red. And then on top of that, there would be the badger skins. Now, actually, the badger skins were made of seal skin. The women used to wear seal skin coats. Well, the tabernacle was probably the first one 
that ever wore a sealskin coat. After 40 years in the wilderness, they were marred by time, but they always protected that which was within. And this speaks of Christ's walk before man. Now, we said a moment ago in the linen covering, you had to go inside to see his beauty. Well, on the outside, there's no beauty that we should desire him. The prophet Isaiah said in the 53rd chapter, verse 2, no beauty that we should desire him. You'll have to go inside to behold his beauty. The world doesn't see in him what you and I should see in him at all. That's very important to see. And then he talks about, "...thou shalt make boards for the tabernacle." Now, it had on each side of it 20 boards, a cubit and a half. These boards were made of this chitim wood, which was very hard wood, like our redwood. It was practically indestructible. And these boards were covered with gold. And you have 20 on each side, 10 in the rear, and there was a certain amount of overlapping, of course. And this actually constituted the tabernacle proper. Now, there were certain bars that went down by these boards that held them together because there was put in each one of these boards a place, a ring, for the bar to go through. And so that when these boards were put up, the bar was just run through. And there were three bars. One of them was a center one. And you see, it would hold the tabernacle together. And this was very important. Now, I believe that everything in the tabernacle speaks of Christ, either his person or his work or something connected with him. I think every color, I think that every thread, I think every article of furniture, everything spoke of him. And this speaks of the fact that the Spirit of God is what holds together today the church. Believers should be held together by the Spirit of God. We're told to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is the thing that's given to us here. Now we find that in these coverings that went over, and I didn't call particular attention to them, but there really were four different colors. There was blue, the heavenly color, and then there was the scarlet, the blood color, and then the purple, and that was the blending of the two, and that speaks of royalty. The heavenly color and the blood, heaven touching earth, the humanity, and then he was born king of the Jews. I think even in the colors that you find this. And then these bars speak of the fact that this is what holds the church together. And all was overlaid with gold. Now, that speaks again of his deity. That's the impressive thing. And that was the appearance given on the outside. Now, we're told that there are certain veils to the tabernacle. There was that inner veil. Verse 31, "...thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet." Now, you have the three colors here. "...and fine twine linen of cunning work with cherubim shall it be made. And thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of chitim wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver." It all rests upon redemption. You see these sockets of silver. And there are four pillars that this veil is hung on. And that veil speaks of the humanity of Christ. And there are four gospels that tell that forth, which makes it very important, by the way. And there are gold pillars on silver sockets. 
deity takes hold of earth through redemption. And there's no capitals on these pillars. That is, nothing on top. They were just cut off. And we're told, Isaiah says, he was cut off out of the land of the living. He lived to be just 33 years of age. Now, the veil proper made of fine twine linen, it was a covering for the ark on the wilderness march. And the only entrance to the Holy of Holies was through the veil. And you couldn't come except through this veil. Now, what did that veil speak of? That veil speaks of the humanity of Christ. That veil speaks of the fact that when he was on the cross and dismissed his spirit, when he died, and there was the rent and the fracture of his spirit and his body, dismissed his spirit, why, the veil in the temple was rent in twain. The way to God was open. The way to God today is through Christ, the only way to God. There's only one entrance to the Holy of Holies. No man cometh to God but by me. Somebody says, well, it's just so you're sincere and you belong to some church. Don't you believe that, my friend? You don't find that in the Word of God. It's when you and I stand before the veil, that's where we see him. And we're actually reminded of our imperfections at a time like that. But thank God, it brings us into the presence of God. What a wonderful picture this is. I know of nothing that is as beautiful as that veil was. A great deal said about it was changed every year. It got so it was nearly five inches thick, and wild horses were tied to one that had been taken out. It had been there a year. They tried to tear it in two, but they couldn't. This is the veil that was rent. It's his humanity. And friends, it's not his life that saves us. It's his death. That spotless life condemned us. When I stand before the veil, well, that condemns us. We see ourselves not able to pass into the presence of God. His death saved us. The veil was rent in twain, man on one side and God on the other. What a picture that we have here. It is a glorious picture, by the way, that's given to us. Now, let me move on down. There's another veil here. We have verse 36, "...thou shalt make a hanging for the door of the tent." Now, the veil was for the inner way, led into the Holy of Holies. The door to the tabernacle led into the holy place. Now, outside was the gate of the tabernacle, and that led into the outer court where the brazen altar was that speaks of the cross of Christ. Now, these are the three entrances. And it's no accident that he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, will you notice? The gate leads to the brazen altar. That brazen altar is the cross of Christ. I'm the way. The way to God is by a cross. The way of the cross leads home. There's no other way. But the way of the cross leads home. And he says, I'm the truth. And if you worship God, you'll have to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, you just don't worship God anyway. You have to come through the Lord Jesus, and you have to come in truth, the spirit of truth. And so that second way, I'm the way, the truth. Then he said, I'm the life. And that's the veil that was rent in twain. He gave up his life, and that was rent. His life never brought us to God. It's his death that brought us to God. What a glorious picture that we have here in the tabernacle. Now, that brings us to the 27th chapter and the brazen altar that we have here. 
Now, I want to say something about this brazen altar. Have you noticed that outside that these articles are made of brass, the brazen altar and the brazen laver? Inside, they're made of gold. You see, the closer you get into God, the emphasis is on the person of Christ. And the farther you move out, the emphasis is on the work of Christ. That is, the thing that he did for us, what he did for us on the cross. That's very important to see. In fact, it's, I would say this, it's all important for us to see that. And we don't want to miss it. Now, I want to read to you here. And again, I can't say this is the most thrilling reading that there is in the Bible because it just doesn't happen to be that, my friends. But it is so meaningful. You've got to dig down here and see this. Now, the gold speaks of his deity. The brass speaks of the judgment of sin. I'm reading now. Chapter 27, verse 1, "...thou shalt make an altar of chittim wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass." Thou shalt make the pans to receive it, and so on. And staves were to be put in it. Now, I think that's about all that I'm going to read of this. And I'd like very much for us to look at this as it's given to us here in the meaning. The ark and the mercy seat, from God's viewpoint, it's God on the inside from the mercy seat, looking outside, and man comes to the brazen altar. And this is where man begins, at the brazen altar. You have to go by all these other articles of furniture to get to him. Now, the furniture here of brass in the outer court, it speaks of sin. It has to do with the sin question. And the sin question must be settled out here before entrance can be made into the holy place. Now, the furniture in the holy place, that all's pictured communion with God, worship. And there's no sin there. God settled a sin question outside, but there's a remembrance of it, for everything is touched with blood, you see. Now, man's standing outside. How is he going to get into God? Well, the first thing he must have is a substitute to die for him. Now, he might avoid meeting God, but if he's to meet God, not die, he must have a substitute, and one that will have to die on that brazen altar for him. And sometimes that altar is called the table of the Lord. It's called the altar of burnt offering. It's where God deals with the sinner. And it speaks of the cross of Christ. It speaks of the fact that he is actually the one who died in our room and in our stead. You have that over in the epistle to the Ephesians in the fifth chapter, verse 2. And Paul says there, "...and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor." That's the burnt offering, too. And this is called the burnt altar, because here's where the burnt sacrifice was offered. And the altar was made by man, but the pattern is in heaven. The cross was God's chosen altar of sacrifice. He was delivered by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God. 
And therefore, Christ is more than just a good man. He was that. But he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And there's no approach to God but by the brazen altar. They must bring a victim there to be sacrificed and must claim that victim as the substitute. And when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, that's the person of Christ, that taketh away the sin of the world, that's what he did for us on the brazen altar. That's what the cross became in those last three hours when darkness came down over the cross. That's when he paid for the sins of the world. And we're told, As many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God, even those that don't do any more nor less than just simply believe in his name. Man could not worship God, could not pray, could not serve God until he came by the brazen altar. Every priest had to come there. Every Levite had to come there. Friends, again, let me say, the way of the cross leads home. There's no other way, but the way of the cross leads home. If he didn't go by the way of the brazen altar, you and I could have no access to God at all. And he's not only a lamb who died for us, he's a risen lamb. John says in Revelation 5, 6, he saw a lamb that had been slain. And this altar stood at the entrance of the tabernacle, and the cross of Christ stands before heaven. It was raised on this earth, but today there's no entrance to heaven except by this cross. The brass that is there, as we've said, speaks of judgment. The chitim wood and the brass speak of his strength for sacrifice, and the horns on the altar speak of strength. It's four square, that is, it's as long as it is wide, and it speaks of the fact that it is a place where everybody's equal. We talked today about all men are created equal. I disagree, by the way, with that statement. They're not created equal, but they're sure all equal when they come to God, friends. You have to come as a sinner, have to come to the cross. And you'll notice that the height of this brazen altar is the same as the mercy seat. Mercy and justice are even. God's not lopsided. When he saves you, he doesn't slop over with a lot of sentimentality. The penalty has been paid, and the mercy just reaches down and meets your need. And he's rich in mercy, because you can come. What a picture this is of the cross of Christ. And then you have the hanging here for the gate of the court. We've had the other two hangings, and here in verse 16 we're told, "...and the gate of the court shall be a hanging of twenty cubits." It was wide, you see, "...of blue and purple and scarlet." And all of these speak of him, the blue, the heavenly color. And he came from heaven in purple. That's the mixture of that and the scarlet. And the scarlet speaks of his blood he shed and his humanity. And that was the entrance. That was the way that they came in. And it tells about the curtain that went here. It was only five cubits high because the fence that went around the outside, that hundred cubits by fifty cubits, that was white linen went all the way around as separated man on the outside from inside. And then something very interesting is given to us here that concludes this chapter. The oil for the light. It's unusual it would be put right here. Verse 20 says, And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring the pure oil olive beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always. And as we've said, that 
oil speaks of the Holy Spirit. That's the interpretation given of that lampstand by Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. And so the light, you see, is that which the Holy Spirit gives. And the Holy Spirit won't speak of himself. He takes the things of Christ and show them unto us. Now, verse 21, "...in the tabernacle of the congregation without the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall order it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever unto their generations on behalf of the children of Israel." Now, that light was burning, you see, and it speaks of Christ. Now, all that has changed. He's gone back to heaven, and he said, "'You are the light of the world.'" And you and I don't make much light. It's only the Spirit of God that can use us. And we see Christ in the book of Revelation. The very first picture of him is he is walking in the midst of the lampstands. He's trying to keep the witness alight and alive down here on this earth. And he's dealing today, I think, with his church and with believers. I think we have every evidence that he's dealing with those that are his own. Now, you'll notice that we have not yet dealt with still one article of furniture. We've omitted it so far, and that is the altar of incense. And we'll find that when we get over to the 30th chapter, the great worship chapter, and you'll find out who can worship God. If you're going to worship God, you'll have to come by this altar. Oh, and I forgot there's another one that we haven't looked at. And that article of furniture has to do also with worship. You'll have to go by it, and that's the brazen laver. You have to be made clean to worship God. Not only go by the brazen altar to receive Christ as Savior, you have to come as a sinner, receive Him as Savior, but you have to be washed and cleansed, and only the Spirit of God can do that. And then you're permitted to go in and to worship Him. What a picture that we have here in this section. Now, as we come today to the 28th chapter of the book of Exodus, it seems like we have a departure here. It actually is not from the instructions of the tabernacle. The tabernacle, we've already seen a great deal of it. The details have been given to us, and we've seen that in every thread and every color, every cord, why there is the meaning that it all suggests Christ in his person and in his work. Now we come to the ones that are going to serve in the tabernacle, and the Levites will serve. The family of Aaron will serve as priests, and Aaron himself will be the great high priest. And he'll have to have garments to serve, and these garments all speak of Christ, and we are given here the instructions for the garments. And it reveals to us Christ as our great high priest. And I know of nothing that reaches down and illustrates how Christ today meets our needs in such a wonderful way. Now, I begin reading at chapter 28, verse 1. And I have to confess that a great deal of these instructions, they do not make thrilling reading. This doesn't read like a detective story, but it has more meaning in it than a detective story or a mystery. And there's no mystery here because it reveals Christ 
And therefore, if we don't see him here, then it's extremely boring, I can assure you. And you wonder why God would give us all these instructions. Well, he gave them to us because actually the Bible is a picture book. And that's the way little children learn is by pictures. I can still remember when I was a little one and I was given a book and in it, I can see those pictures to this good day. A is for apple, B is for baby, C is for cat, and D is for dog. And as far as I can go, I wasn't that precocious to go all the way through the alphabet, but I do remember those. And God has given us these pictures that you and I, as babes in Christ, and I'm not sure that many of us get past that stage. I find that a great many of the super-duper saints are just great big overgrown babies today, and we all need the picture book to see this great truth God has for us. Now let's look at this chapter 28. And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him and among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty." Now, don't get the idea that there's something holy about the garments in the sense that you and I think of that today. This is not a handkerchief that's been prayed over, friends. That's superstition. That's not what you have here. You see, the word for holy here means in the Hebrew set apart, and it means that which was set apart for God. Anything that's set apart for God is holy. Now, you may have in your pocketbook today $10. You may want to take $1 out of that and give that to the Lord's work. And I just well carry that illustration right on through to its logical conclusion. Maybe you want to send it to the Through the Bible program. Well, the minute that you set that aside for the service of God, that $1, and you may have gotten it at a store, and that store may have gotten it from a gambler, and a gambler may have gotten it from a prostitute, and a prostitute may have gotten it from one who was a thief, and so on and so on. But the minute that that is set aside for God, that's holy. Anything that's set aside for God is holy. Now, these are holy garments. They are to be used in the service of God, you see. And I am able to claim today, I don't wear a robe, but I do use a suit, a mohair suit, that I use exclusively for the pulpit. And I have a lot of fun kidding my intimate friends. I tell them I have on my holy suit today. I have on my holy clothes. Well, in one sense, that's accurate. It is set aside for just one thing, that is the ministering of the Word of God. Now, thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. Notice there, for glory, the glory of God and for beauty. And I love that. Things don't have to be ugly, friends, just because they're in the service of God. I personally resent today that the world and the flesh and the devil has to get everything that's beautiful, even a beautiful woman, beautiful colors, beautiful buildings. Why can't God get the beauty? He's the one who made beauty. 
And if you don't think he splashes color around, watch a sunset. Or look at the leaves in the fall. Or go out and look at the heavens during a storm even. Oh, God majors in colors and beauty. And there is a beauty. And so they are for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I fill with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Now, Aaron is to be set aside for the ministry of the great high priest, and these are his garments. And these are the garments which they shall make. Now, this is verse 4. First, a breastplate. Second, an ephod. And third, and a robe. And fourth, and a broad coat. And five, a mitre. And a girdle. Six. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Now, here are six garments that are to be used in the service of God, worn by Aaron, and then, of course, passed on to those who shall succeed him in office. Now, verse 5, "...and they shall take gold and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen." Now, the garments are to be made out of the very best material, the very finest material. I want to be very careful here, but I feel like God ought to have the very best. And I must confess that we have to be very careful about this. I have personally, in my ministry, never driven an automobile that is considered exclusive, like the Cadillac or a Lincoln or something like that. One time I had a man offered to buy me one of those cars, and I refused it. I turned it down. I drive a Chevrolet, and very frankly, I feel I have as much right to drive the other, but I do know that it's misunderstood, and I feel like I should not do that at all. I feel like that we do need to be very careful. Now, I happen to know right now of a certain minister, and I won't attempt to identify it at all, that's coming under great criticism, and it's because that Several people went out to the headquarters one day, and they found nothing but Cadillacs parked around the place. Well, very candidly, I can see why that would be criticized, because of the fact that today, especially when that type of ministry begs and urges people to give and is promoting all the time, if that is true, then we ought not to spend money needlessly. We ought to be very careful. And that's one of the reasons that I have attempted to follow this pattern for the very simple reason that I ask people to give to the radio. Well, I don't want to drive around over the country in a Cadillac, and I don't intend to, even if it's given to me. So if any of you have been thinking about giving me a Cadillac, well, you forget that. <laughs> May I say to you very seriously, that this is something, though, that we need to recognize that God's work should have the very best, and that doesn't mean a Cadillac. Now, I'm going to be very practical and frank with you today. What kind of equipment should we have? The machine that I'm making this tape on right now, what should it be, a cheap model? No, the tapes are a little important, we feel. 
And so, very frankly, we got the very best machine we could get. Now, we feel that is something that is essential, and we think God's work ought to have it. I trust that you understand what we're saying, because I believe that today God's being cheated, and he's being robbed. Malachi asked the question, will a man rob God? You know what God's answer is? Yes, he sure will. He did in that day, and he will today. Now, let me move on there to bring all of these, the very best, to make the garments for this man Aaron, the high priest. Now, the first is an ephod, and they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and of purple, of scarlet and fine twine linen with cunning work. It shall have the two shoulder pieces thereof joined at the two edges thereof, and so it shall be joined together." And the curious girdle of the ephod, which is upon it, shall be of the same according to the work thereof, even of gold, of blue and purple, and scarlet, and fine twine linen. And thou shalt take two onyx stones, and grave on them the names of the children of Israel, six of their names on one stone, and the other six names on the rest, on the other stone." Now, he had underneath a linen garment, just like the other priests. Then over that, he had this ephod. And I don't know how to describe garments other than to say that, to me, you'd take a big, long piece of goods, and right in the center of it, you'd make a big hole for your head, then you'd drop that down. Half of it go in front and half in the back, then you gather it in the middle with a girdle. And that's about what it amounted to. The only thing that it wasn't done quite like that. The two pieces were brought together by two stones at the top, one on one shoulder and one on the other. And six of the names of the children of Israel were on one onyx stone, six on the other. In other words, when the high priest went into the presence of God, he carried the children of Israel on his shoulders. And that speaks of the strength of the high priest. That speaks of power. And we have a high priest today, we're told, that he is able to save to the uttermost because he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He is able to save, you see. He has the strength and the power. And you remember the parable that he gave about the little sheep that got lost and the shepherd went out and found him? And what did he do? He put him on his shoulder. And that's where he carries me today. And that's where he carries you, friends, because I get, you know, off on the sidelines from time to time. And he's there to put us right back on his shoulder and to carry us. What a lovely picture this is, the effort. And I can't go into other detail. It's here. Then over that was a breastplate. And the best way I have of describing that is, it was sort of a vest that went over, but a very beautiful one. And notice this, verse 15, "...and thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment." Now, that breastplate of judgment is interesting. Why is it a breastplate of judgment? Well, friends, sin has been judged. And we need the breastplate of righteousness today as believers. You see, that covers the vital part of us. And that's the only way we could stand in the presence of God. And that means our sins are judged. The righteousness of Christ is made over to us. And so this is called a breastplate of judgment with cunning work. 
after the work of the ephod, thou shalt make it. It sort of was part of the ephod. The ephod and the breastplate, they rather went together. And of gold, of blue, and of purple, and of scarlet, and fine twine linen shalt thou make it. Now, this was a thing of beauty. This was really a beautiful thing. Four squares shall be being doubled. A span shall be the length thereof, and a span shall be the breadth thereof. Now, we're really getting down to the details of it. And I just want to lift out this particular part here. And thou shalt set in it settings of stones, even four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, a carbuncle. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a lazure, an agate, an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and jasper. They shall be set in gold in their enclosings. Now, friends, this was the thing of beauty. On the breast of the great high priest, there were these stones, and twelve of them now, and there were three, and there were four rows of them, twelve stones. And on each stone, we are told, the stones shall be with the names of the children of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet. Now, it was a thing of beauty. We'll take up these stones. We find them again, by the way, in the book of Revelation, the foundation of the new Jerusalem are these same stones. And it's quite interesting to see that. Each one a different color. What a flashing, beautiful display this was. I think that God's universe is filled with color. We don't see it today because sin has marred it. These men, when they made the trip to the moon, everything else was either light or dark, black and white. There was no color except on this little earth. <laughs> We're the only place that has any color, friends, because we can see the color that's here. But there's other color, and I'm of the opinion God's universe, when sin is removed, will flash with color. What a thing of beauty it will be. Now, these twelve stones are quite interesting. You see that when he put this on and went in before the people, it represents the Lord Jesus, who's in God's right hand for us. Now, he not only carries us on his shoulder, the place of power and the place of ability, but he carries us on his breast, the place where his heart is. Love, you see. He loves us. What a picture this is and we're engraved on his heart. We sometimes take that in the book of Revelation about he'll give to us a name, a stone with a name on it. Well, we have a notion that we're going to get a new name up there. Well, I think so, but that's not it. The new name is his name. He's going to mean something different to each one of us. You see, he means something different to me than he does to you. He's met my need in a certain way, of meet your need in a certain way. And there's a lot of instructions here, and I'm not going to read it because by the time I got through, everybody would be tuned out, and I wouldn't blame them because it just goes into minute details. Why? Why, the Spirit of God, friends, is putting an emphasis on what he thinks is important. Now we come to verse 30, "...and thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, 
and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord, and Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. Now, I don't want you to tell this to anybody. I'm just telling this to you, and I would like to keep it a secret from everybody else. I do not know what the Urim and Thummim is. And I have read, I suppose, 25 different authors that have written about this, and I have news for you. They don't know either. The very interesting thing is it had something to do with determining the will of God. Just how, I don't know. Actually, there's some that thought they were dice. I don't think so. But I do think it was something that determined the will of God. The reason that it is obscure to us today, because, as you well know, that if it was clearer, we'd have some, and I ought not to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway, some nut would come up with a Urim and Thummim, and he'd be able to tell you all the answers. We got a lot of them can tell you the answers without having this. So I know that as well we don't know what it is, and I want to leave it just right there. Now, we have the instructions given for the robe of the ephod. And here is something that is quite wonderful. Verse 33, "...beneath upon the hem, if thou shalt make pomegranates of blue and purple and of scarlet round about the hem thereof, and bells of gold between them round about, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe round about." The first sermon I ever preached in California as a pastor, I spoke on golden bells and pomegranates. And I told the folk I didn't know what a pomegranate was, and they grow them here in Southern California. When I made that statement, by 9 o'clock that evening, I had at least 20 bushels of pomegranates on my back porch. I know what they are now. The pomegranate speaks of fruit. And the bell speaks of witness. And we ought to have both in our lives. There ought to be a witness, and there ought to be fruit in our lives. And friends, you ought not give out tracts unless you're making the right kind of tracts in this world. There are too many people today that want to witness, that don't have a life to back it up. And there are also too few today who have a life but are not witnessing. We ought to have a bell and a pomegranate, bell and a pomegranate. I wish I could talk more about that, but I cannot. Then you have the holy crown. And this is what he wore, the high priest. Verse 36, Thou shalt make a plate of pure gold, engrave upon it like the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And that's the mitre that Aaron wore. And that, of course, speaks of the fact that here is a man set aside for God. We ought to have the helmet today of salvation. That plume should be out on the helmet of salvation. That is our testimony. And then his ordinary garments are given here. We are told, Thou shalt embroider the coat of fine linen, thou shalt make the mitre of fine linen, and so on. And then he goes on to say, Thou shalt put them on Aaron, and thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness from the loins even unto the thighs they shall reach. God wanted no display of the flesh, no nudity around the service of God. And by the way, we ought to keep that in mind today. But here it represents any work of the flesh. And Aaron and those that 
were associated with him, all dressed alike, except Aaron on special occasions. Now, friends, we've come in chapter 29 again to the priesthood. Last time, we saw the garments that Aaron was to wear. And these were garments of glory and beauty. And that separated him from the other priests. However, he only wore those garments on special occasions, and he had garments which were just plain, simple linen clothing, and they wore that in the service of the tabernacle. But now we come in chapter 29 to the consecration of the priests and the offerings that were made at that time. Now, I'm not going to read all of this. I guarantee you we've got 46 verses here that are not as interesting and thrilling as they might be. But this is something that I'm confident that the Spirit of God wants to use to minister to you and me. And as we said before, this is God's ABC book for us, and great spiritual lessons are here for us. Now, will you notice in the consecration of the priests, we have, and this is the thing that thou shalt do unto them to hallow them, to minister unto me in the priest's office. Take one young bullock and two rams without blemish. And that is the first. Consecration for a believer is actually nothing that he does, by the way. It's something God does for us, and it rests upon the finished work of Christ. It has to rest there. And then verse 2 now, "...and unleavened bread and cakes unleavened, tempered with oil and wafers unleavened, anointed with oil of wheat and flour shalt thou make them. And thou shalt put them into one basket, bring them in the basket with the bullock and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons thou shalt bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, shall wash them with water." Now, that washing is typical of regeneration, of course. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done. It's according to his mercy saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And this is the washing that has to do with regeneration. Now, when we see the laver, why, we're going to see that's a different type of washing there altogether. Now, Moses is going to put the garments on Aaron. Thou shalt take the garments and put upon Aaron the coat, the robe, the ephod, and the ephod, and the breastplate, and gird him with the curious girdle of the ephod. And verse 8, Thou shalt bring his sons and put coats upon them. Thou shalt gird them with girdles, Aaron and his sons, and put the bonnets on them. And the priest's office shall be theirs for a perpetual statute, and thou shalt consecrate Aaron and his sons. Now, consecration actually is what God does, not what we do. I hear so much today about consecration services, where folk do something and they promise to do something. Consecration, friends, means to come to God with empty hands and let him fill them. That's all in the world that it means. I've promised him big things in the past, and I'd never quite made good. I don't like to think of that being consecration. It's not what I promise him. Consecration is to come to God with empty hands, confess our weakness, our inability, and let God do the rest. 
watched Moses pray and watched Elijah pray and David pray and Samuel pray. And in the New Testament, listen to Paul pray. And friends, you're going to find out that these men never came to God on the basis of who they are, what they are promising him they're going to do. I've been to these faggot services. I went to them for years where you go in and put a little chip or a little limb on the fire and you then give them a testimony in what you're going to do. And believe me, I've heard enough promised at those faggot services to turn the world upside down, but never worked out quite like that because actually we friends don't have really much to offer him, do we? Or maybe you do. I don't. And the thing is that we come to him with empty hands and let him fill us. We need to recognize that. And that is the whole thing that we have here. Now, we're going to come to this again in the book of Leviticus. And when we get there, I expect to go into a little bit more detail. Now, you'll find that we come to 10 where we have the sacrifices. Thou shalt cause a bullock to be brought before the tabernacle of congregation and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the bullock. Now, you'll notice that there's a great deal in the Old Testament of when a man came to the tabernacle. And here, of course, it is the high priest and his family. They put their hands on the bullock, the laying on of hands. Now, a great many people seem to think that that transmits something spiritual. It does not. That's not the purpose of it. You can't transmit anything by just laying hands on anyone. The only thing you can transfer to the other man by laying hands on is disease germs. You can pass them along, but that's all you'll be able to pass on. The laying on of hands on an animal is identification. And when a sinner came up to that altar, he put his hand on the little animal. That means identification. And that means that little animal is taking your place. But this idea today that you've got some sort of a hocus-pocus, acrocadabra proposition working, that's nonsense, friend. Let's get rid of that type of thing. God gets right down to the nitty-gritty with us. This is reality. They are identified. Now, this man Aaron, this bullock is taking his place. It's dying for him because he's a sinner. These are the things that you have here. Now you have the order of the sacrifice here, and you'll find out that it's the burnt offering here. It's not until we get to the book of Leviticus that we have the five offerings given. And there you will have the sin offering, trespass offering, mentioned for the first time. For from the very beginning, even from the Garden of Eden, was a burnt offering. And that altar that we've identified as the brazen altar is sometimes called a burnt altar because the burnt altar is where the main sacrifice was offered. Now, the main sacrifice, as we shall see, the burnt offering, the first one speaks of the person of Christ, who he is. And, of course, that altar speaks of what he's done for us. But the burnt altar speaks of the burnt sacrifice, and that sets forth the person of Christ. Now, we have all of that in here, and it's quite detailed. The thing is that I will go into detail when we do get to Leviticus, 
but I'll pass over this at the time. There's many details here that actually for us at this time are not too important. We'll pick them up later. Now you have in verse 26, "...the food for the priests. Thou shalt take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration, wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be thy part. Thou shalt sanctify the breast of the wave offering." Now again in Leviticus, you'll find out that a part of an offering went to Aaron and to the priests as their part. You see, they had no part in the nation Israel. And this is the way that God supported them. They were to serve and they would receive a part of the offering. And this is the part now that is to be for them. Now, this chapter closes with the emphasis here upon this burnt offering. And that's what you have here. It's not till you get to Leviticus that you have a sin offering and trespass offering. And I know the question will rise in the minds of many, well, why is that true? Why is it that you have this sort of thing here and you don't have a sin offering yet? Well, you see, the sin offering and the trespass offering were given at the time the law was given, and it goes with the law. In other words, sin was sin before the law, but it was not a trespass, and it was not a sin in the sense that it was an overt act against the commandment of God. And today, sin is sin. That means if a man that commits a sin, why, it's sin. It may not be a trespass. He may not know the law. But actually, today, even in our legal courts, I think there's a rule of thumb. I remember when I studied commercial law years ago that this was one of the axioms that was put down. Ignorance of the law excuses no one. Many things can be done in ignorance and can be wrong, but it does not become a trespass or an overt sin until it's against a commandment, you see. That's the reason, actually, the law was given, to show man that he was a sinner. He already was one. The law didn't make man a sinner, just reveal that he was. Now we come to this continual burnt offering, and this burnt offering is to be continually offered. That's the important thing to note. Verse 38, and I should read some of this. Now, this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. The one lamb thou shalt offer in the morning, the other lamb thou shalt offer at even. And with the one lamb, a tenth deal of flour, and so on. These details we pick up later on in Leviticus when we have the sacrifices and the order of them given. Now, the important thing for us here, the only important thing, this was the daily sacrifice. Every morning, every evening, that was a burnt offering. A lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening. And that speaks, of course, of the fact that these people needed this continual reminder that they needed someone to take their place, that their sin merited death, and that there must be the shedding of blood. Now, very candidly, this is brought out in Hebrews. We're told, once in the end of the age has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, you see the blood of bulls and goats and lambs just couldn't take away sin. 
But now he has. The Lord Jesus has dealt adequately with sin. And that's very important to see here, that his sacrifice was adequate. And he only died once, once in the end of the age as he appeared. We've come now to the great worship chapter in chapter 30, and we have instructions now for the altar of incense. That's prayer. And then we will see who can worship, that they must be redeemed. And not only the redeemed, why, we're going to see the instructions for the laver. You have to be cleansed. These are requirements for us if we are going to be serviceable to God. Now let's come and take the altar of incense. That altar is in the holy place. I hope you have our chart. You'll find it very helpful if you do. And you find here that inside the holy place, the main part of the tabernacle, see in the outer court, there are two articles of furniture, the brazen altar, the brazen laver. We've had the brazen altar, not the brazen laver. The brazen altar speaks of the cross of Christ, his death for our sins. Now, when you step in the main compartment, you have three articles of furniture, all speak of worship. The lampstand, the table of showbread, and we've had both of those now. We must worship God in spirit and in truth, and it's where God's people meet together and have fellowship. And fellowship doesn't mean a banquet in a church. It's not where you meet together and gossip. It's where you meet and feed on the person of Christ. That's the banquet. That's worship. But there's also another altar there, and that's the altar of incense. Now let's come to this, because this is very important, and I'll read. Thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon. Of chitim wood thou shalt make it. Now, this is very important for us to see. A cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. Now, you notice how that is given to us, the size. Very small, by the way. And four squares shall it be, and two cubits shall be the height thereof, the horns thereof shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof, and the sides thereof, round about, and the horns thereof, and thou shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. And the golden rings shalt thou make to it under the crown of it by the two corners thereof, upon the two sides of it shalt thou make it, and they shall be for the places for the staves to bear it. Now, see, all the articles of furniture had rings put there so the staves could be put there so they could be carried on the shoulders of the priests. Now, when we get to the book of Numbers, we're going to see when they began the wilderness march that the priests, that is, the Levites, carried the articles of furniture through the wilderness. Now, we are told in verse 6, "...thou shalt put it before the veil." that is, by the ark of the testimony before the mercy seat, that is, over the testimony where I'll meet with thee. Now, you see, the place where this altar went was right by the veil, and right on the other side of it, there was the ark and the mercy seat. And it was in the holy place. It was the part of worship. Now, we read here, and I'd like to read verse 7, "...and Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning, 
when he dresseth the lamps, he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. And this is very important to see. This altar, by the way, was not an altar for a sacrifice. No sacrifice was to be there. And they were to use a certain kind of incense. Verse 9, "...ye shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meal offering, neither shall ye pour drink offerings upon it." In other words, the only thing that it was for, just one thing, and that was incense. And the priests would go in and burn incense every time that he'd light the lights thereof. Now, this altar is very important to see. It's part of worship. It's in this worship chapter. And may I say right at the very beginning, it speaks of prayer. And the reason we know that it speaks of prayer, why we are told here, Incense is a symbol of prayer and praise many places. David said in Psalm 141, 2, "...let my prayer be set before thee as incense." And you find in the book of Revelation, when the angel offered prayer, uh, he also poured out the incense. And David then could say this, "...let my prayer set before thee as sweet incense." And you remember when the New Testament opens, and Dr. Luke, by the way, opens it chronologically with this man, Zechariah, at the altar of incense. He was a member of the tribe of Levi, and he was serving there. And incense was associated there with prayer. He was serving at the altar of incense, and it was at the time of prayer. In other words, God spoke after a silence of 400 years here at this altar of incense. Now, incense, therefore, it's a figure of Christ, our intercessor. Where Aaron ministered, why, it was where the high priest was. Now, Aaron is a figure of Christ in this particular sense, although he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why, we find that the altar of incense, when you turn over to the 8th chapter of Hebrews, is in the Holy of Holies. It looks like the writer of Hebrews didn't know where it belonged. Oh, yes, he did. Well, why did he put it in there? Because when he wrote that veil had been rent in twain, Christ had offered himself down here. His flesh had been rent, and he had died upon the cross, but he had ascended back to heaven. And that altar of incense is in heaven today. And you and I come to God through Christ. He's our great intercessor. He's up there. That altar speaks of the place where he stands. And when you and I come to God in prayer, we have to come through him. Now, I can't buy this today when I hear folks say, now that I've been saved, I can come directly to God. No, you can't. You come through Christ, my friend. He's the one that brings us into the presence of God. Now, Christ is in heaven praying for us. It was wonderful for the people of Israel to know that their great high priest was in there at that altar praying for them. It's wonderful today to know that our great high priest is praying for us also. It's a beautiful, wonderful picture. And it says that he doesn't pray for the world. Did you know Christ does not pray for the world? He says in his own prayer in John 17, verse 9, look it up. He says, I pray not for the world. 
I pray for those that thou hast given me. Somebody says, you mean to tell me he doesn't pray for the world? He says he doesn't. Why doesn't he? He died for the world. And the Holy Spirit is down here to make the offering of Christ real to those that will accept and receive it. He could do no more than what he did dying for the sins of the world. But he's up yonder today praying for you and me. And I'm glad he is, because if it wasn't for him up there, we couldn't do very much down here today. It's wonderful to know that we have a great high priest praying for us. When we all come to God in prayer, none of us bring anything that makes us to be heard above someone else. We are heard because of Christ. We're told that very definitely over in Ephesians 1, 6. Let me turn and read this. "...to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved." And the Father said, "...this is my beloved Son. Hear Him." And we're not only to hear Him, but we're to pray through Him. Christ said we're to pray in His name. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. And that's what it means, I think, praying in the Spirit. Now, this article of furniture, you notice, is separated from the other articles of furniture. The consecration of priests had to take place before this altar is brought before us. It's an altar of incense. Only priests could worship. Even the king Isaiah was smitten with leprosy when he tried to intrude in here. And friends, only priests can pray today. There's a great deal of sentimental, rotten rubbish that a person can lead any sort of sinful life, reject Christ, and then in time of trouble, maybe his poor mother's in the hospital, and this old reprobate, he gets down on his knees before God. The moving pictures have shown that. I think sometimes some sentimental preachers talk about these things. God says he'll not answer. Let's be very careful about that, my friend. The altar of incense is where the priests came. The only prayer that any sinner can pray is, God, be merciful to me. And God will hear and answer that when it's brought to him. Now, there's to be continual praise. And you notice God says, perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. We're to pray without ceasing. There it was in the morning and in the evening. Now, when the high priest went inside, offered incense... And he spent time in there. You know what happened? That incense got in his garments. And when he came outside, the people, you know, very frankly, they could smell him. You talk about having the right deodorant. He had the right deodorant. And when the great high priest walked by, people just sniffed. They said, my, doesn't he smell good? (laughs) Trouble today with a lot of the saints is they don't have the right deodorant. The right deodorant is prayer. Let my prayer send before thee a sweet incense, and it'll get in your garments when you spend time in prayer. Now we pass to the second requirement of worship. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I'm reading now verse 12, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them, when thou numberest them. There'll be no plague among them, because they're to be redeemed. 
This they shall give every one that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is twenty giras, and half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. And it was of silver, you see. They shall be ransom of silver. And silver is the medal of redemption. It's a type of redemption. Everyone had to be redeemed that could worship. Now, we hear a great deal today about public worship. Actually, there's no such thing. Only the redeemed can worship. And we ought to be very careful about that. I can well understand that a great many people going over the band of radio would come to this program, and if a man is a Christian, I think he'd be alerted and probably listen. If he's not a Christian, he says, Oh, my gracious, there's another one of those Bible screamers. I won't listen to him. And then he passes over it. Or he may start listening, and if he does, he'll get redeemed. That's the thing we count on. We found out that God will speak to many hearts if they'll listen to the Word of God. Now, when they're redeemed, we can worship God. Then we can meet around the Word of God. But you have to be redeemed. And very frankly, we're not as careful even on this program as we should be. I ask people to support it. But I hope you understand I'm talking to believers. Now, if you're an unbeliever, we're not asking you to give a thing to the program. Because actually, we don't think you can worship God. And giving is an act of worship. And therefore, we trust you'll listen. You're welcome to listen. And even to send for the notes and outlines. We'd love for you to have them. And we believe, if you will, you'll become redeemed that you will turn to the Lord and be saved. That's the wonder of the wonders of studying the Word of God, friends. Now, not only must they be redeemed, but they must be cleansed. That brings us to the lava. And the lava now is in the outer court, was made of brass. And there are two articles out there, the brazen altar. That's where God settles the sin question. That's where he deals with our sin as sinners. And the lava, brazen lava's out there, and that's where God deals with our sins as saints. Because after all, the saints sin. I've been with them a long time, friends. This idea today that the saints are heavenly, they're not that yet. To dwell above with saints in love, that'll be glory. But to stay below with the saints, I know that's another story, friends. Now, let's look here, and I'm reading verse 17 of chapter 30 of Exodus. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make a labor of brass, and his foot also of brass. Now, the foot is a little basin below that they wash their feet in. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister to burnt offering made by fire unto the Lord. Now, the priests could not serve unless the first thing they did when they came in the tabernacle, they'd go wash. They got contaminated, you see, on the outside. And every time you go to church, friends, on Sunday, maybe after all, it isn't the fact that the preacher's dull. It may be that you're dirty. And when you have a combination, though, of a dull preacher and a dirty saint, you don't have very exciting service. I can tell you that. But the thing we need to do is to remember that you can't worship 
until you've been cleansed. You and I get dirty in this world. It's the reason the Lord washed the disciples' feet. He's still doing that today, by the way. We need to go to the laver. And that is the first thing they did. Now, if they go into the burnt altar with the sacrifice, they wash before. And afterward, they wash. If they go into the holy place, they wash when they go in. They wash when they come out. And I'm of the opinion that that matter of washing was pretty important. So important that I think maybe one priest that came up and washed his hands had turned to the other priest that's there washing his. And he says, Ma, says, how many times you been up here today? And that fellow says, I've been up here half a dozen times. The other one says, well, I've been up here nearly a dozen times. And look at my hands. I've got dishpan hands. I've washed so much. And I wonder why God wants us to do this. And I suppose Aaron standing in the background would say, well, look here, brethren. I'll tell you why the Lord wants you to wash. He wants you to know you've got to be holy. And you can't worship Him. And you can't serve Him unless you've been cleaned up. This idea today that any dirty saint living in sin, every now and then you hear of some man that gets involved, sometimes a preacher with a woman or some Christian worker with a woman, and they say, my, I don't understand it. He seemed to be such a wonderful servant of God. My friend, if you check his work, you'll find out it is wood, hay, and stubble. God sees to it that it doesn't amount to anything, and there's nothing like that that will make a phony and bring the work of God today into disrepute. Now, this brazen laver, this was the place where the priests wash. We are to come to him today in confession. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's very important to see this laver of brass. It has to do with our sanctification. That's in my book on the tabernacle. That's the thing that I emphasize. It speaks of the sanctification of the believer. And you and I are to go and wash if we're going to serve God. And we go there to wash if we're going to be used of God. It's very important that we be clean. Now, again, we need to not only have the sweet incense in our garments, but we ought to have our bodies washed with pure water. <laughs> the pure water is the Word of God. You know what the label was made out? Made out of brass. It was made out of the mirrors of the women, that we are told. They brought their mirrors, and they used brass in that day, highly polished brass for mirrors. They didn't have a glass like we have today. And, of course, women haven't changed, and men haven't either, down through the centuries. So the women all had mirrors, and they brought those. Now, what is it that reveals the sin? It's the Word of God. The Word of God is a mirror. And we're to look into the mirror, the Word of God, and we see that there's a smudge spot on us. What are we to do? And he's washing feet today. The laver also is in heaven. And you go to him if we confess our sins... Now, you don't go to confess publicly. You go to him. That labor's in heaven. And you go to him. And I think every Sunday before you ever go to church, you ought to go in and confess your sins of the week. Now, don't tell me you don't get dirty. I know you do. I get dirty. Your eyes get dirty. Your mind gets dirty. Your hands get dirty. Your feet get dirty. You get dirty. And the trouble in our churches today, even our fundamental churches on Sunday morning... And I'm not being crude when I say this. 
And one of the reasons that people are not interested in coming there is simply because there's too much spiritual B.O. We need to go to him in confession today. We need to go to that laver and wash today before we go into worship. And God doesn't accept worship until it comes from a cleansed heart, nor will he accept service. That is something that's certainly being proven out. Now, not only should we be washed, and not only should we have the incense, but we also should be anointed. Verse 22, Moreover, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take thou also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, five hundred shekels, and of sweet cinnamon, half so much, even two hundred and fifty shekels, and so on. Verse 25, Thou shalt make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary. It shall be a holy anointing oil. And thou shalt anoint the tabernacle of the congregation therewith, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and the vessels. And verse 30, Thou shalt anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. Now, that is something that you and I need today. What is that anointing? John says in his epistle, We have an anointing. What is that anointing? Well, that anointing is the Holy Spirit. And we have an anointing that enables us to understand the Word of God. And that's the reason that the Word of God is being made real to so many people today, even by radio. Friends, it's not the speaker. It's not the program. It is the Word of God used by the Spirit of God. And only the Spirit of God can anoint you. You don't go to some man and have him pour oil on you. Go to God, even right now, and say, Oh, God, open my heart and open my mind and my life to understand your word. Give me an anointing. And that anointing is very important today. It is all important. In fact, John mentions that. Probably I should not take it for granted that you're going to look it up. Probably I should turn to it and read it. This is First John 2.20. We have an unction, and that word unction is anointing. We have an anointing from the Holy One, and ye know all things. And then we're told down in verse 27, "...but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him." Now, friends, the Holy Spirit is the one that can open your mind and heart when you go to worship God, to understand, to bring blessing to your heart, to give you a real thrill. Oh, there are so many people asking the question, what's life all about? What shall I do? How shall I communicate? Oh, my friend today, ask God to let the Spirit of God make real to you the Word of God. Now, the incense that was to be put on it, we'll have to turn to the last of the chapter to find out about it. And I'd like to turn there. Verse 34, And the Lord said unto Moses, Take unto thee sweet spices, stactis, anica, galbanum, these sweet spices with pure incense of each shall there be a like weight. Thou shalt make it a perfume, a confection, after the art of the apothecary, tempered together, pure and holy. 
and anyone was not permitted to offer any other kind than this here. Now, the stacta was a resinous gum that oozed from trees on Mount Gilead. It was called the bomb of Jericho. And then the onica came from a species of shellfish, sort of a crab. And the galbanum was taken from the leaves of a Syrian plant. Now, the frankincense, no one knows what it was. It was a secret formula, and no one knows what it was. And all of this gave a sweet incense, and it was not to be duplicated. Verse 38, the last verse of the chapter, "...whosoever shall make like unto that to smell thereto shall even be cut off from his people." In other words, if anybody made an incense to smell to God, then they'd smell. Let me tell you, God wouldn't accept them at all. Now, what does this mean? This altar speaks of prayer, speaks of worship, the place where we offer our praise, our thanksgiving, and our requests. It is not to be duplicated, and the formula was not to be used. In other words, this is an attempt of trying to make worship pleasing to the natural man. And you can't do that. You can't make worship pleasing to the natural man. We are to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so today, all sorts of things are used to try to attract people to church, to get them to come. Nothing should be used but the Word of God. Now, if there's a little ritual with it, fine. But let's make sure the Word of God is the center and everything else centers around the Word of God. Now, that was the incense that was to be offered on it. And we have said that incense speaks of prayer. Let my prayer be set before thee as incense, said David. And it speaks of the fact that our Lord Jesus is our great intercessor in heaven. It's a picture of Christ, our intercessor. It's where Aaron ministered, the high priest. We're told that Aaron shall burn their own sweet incense every morning when he dresseth the lamps. He shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. It's a place where he ministered. Now, we have here, therefore, a picture of Christ, our great intercessor. And there are two articles in the tabernacle that speak of Christ's work in heaven. One is this altar of incense, and the other is the brazen lava. Now, there were two altars. We've seen the brazen altar outside. That's where all sacrifice was offered. And then this altar of incense, and no sacrifice was to be offered there at all nor burnt offering. Ye shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meal offering, neither shall ye pour drink offering thereon. Now, there were these two altars. The altar of incense is where God deals with a saint. The burnt altar is where God deals with a sinner. And the burnt altar speaks of the earth and the sin of man. The incense altar speaks of heaven and of holiness. The burnt altar is what Christ did for us on earth, and the incense altar is what Christ is doing for us in heaven today. But it also speaks of our prayers. It speaks of our part in worship. And you recall last time I made the 
statement that we don't actually know where the altar went. After the death of Christ, we find it in the Holy of Holies. That's where it is today. We are told that after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, or the golden altar. That's in Hebrews 9, 3, and 4. And it speaks, therefore, of Christ prays for us. And he's the one who truly praises God and prays for us. He's the one who genuinely worships God for us. He's our intercessor. And how are we to learn to worship? Well, not at the bloody altar. You go as a sinner there, and you take Christ as your Savior. And then you enter the holy place, and there you come to this golden altar, and there's no sacrifices. The sin question has to be settled outside. And when you worship God, the sin question has to be settled. And the very basis, though, of our prayers rests upon the fact that this altar once a year is consecrated with blood. And therefore, we are accepted before God, not because of ourselves, but it's because of what and who Christ is, what he did and who he is.